So they say what happened in Israel on October 7th is not so different from what happened to us in U.S. in 9-11. Sure, there have been wars there, uh, but it's the number of civilian deaths and suffering that's appalling. What was your first reaction as you read or saw the news? Sorrow, anger, desperation. Whatever your initial response was, uh, we know our response of faith must be Maranatha, O Lord, come. We long to see Jesus return. We're eager to see that day more than ever when heaven opens and he who sits on the white horse called faithful and true in righteousness, judges and makes war. Now, even as we look forward to that bright, glorious scene, there are dimmer glimpses and previews of it all throughout the scriptures, foreshadowing, you might call them, and especially in the life of David as king, the Lord's anointed. We continue with his story in 2 Samuel 19, and I'm going to begin with an overview. Uh, 2 Samuel 19 is a large chapter with 43 verses, lot to cover. And actually, we could extend our study even further and technically start at the final verse of the previous chapter, chapter 18. And chapter 18, verse 33, locates David at the gate of the city of Mahanaim, far from Jerusalem. There, the king's mourning for his rebellious son as he ascends to the chamber above the gate. He has just learned that Absalom was killed in battle. And then you see it in sort of structure there in chapter 19, verse 8. By then, David's sitting at the gate. So after David reconnects with his people in verses 1 to 8, we see a disconnect among his people in verses 9 to 14. It begins with the ten tribes of Israel eagerly trying to restore David to his throne in Jerusalem. And when his own family tribe of Judah lags behind in the effort, the king tries to spur them to action. That will soon boil over into a conflict. But continuing in this chapter, the narrator delays the narration of this conflict and pauses to spotlight three individuals, Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai. It's only after dealing with these in verses 15 to 39 that we resume the conflict between Judah and the other tribes. So this particular storytelling method creates a sort of a sandwich structure with verses 9 to 14 at the top, verses 40 to 43 at the bottom with the same subject there, and then verses 15 to 39 in between. If all this sounds like too much, I want you to focus on this one, two, three outline. Here we go. There's bitter grief over one son in verses 1 to 8. There's competition between two sides in verses 9 to 14 and verses 40 to 43. There's a king dealing with three persons in verses 15 to 39. Also keep in mind, however imperfectly, David handles all these relational challenges. He nonetheless reflects albeit dimly, the perfections and glories of our King, Christ Jesus. So look to these three qualities to celebrate and emulate. One, 
The true king displays compassionate leadership. The true king displays compassionate leadership. I think that's verses 1 to 8. Who, the true king, stirs up loyalty and zeal. The true king stirs up loyalty and zeal. So I take that from verses 9 to 14 and 40 to 43. Three, the true king deals wisely in judging character. The true king deals wisely in judging character. That's verses 15 to 39. So as we observe these qualities or virtues partially in David and fully realized in Jesus, we just seek them in ourselves as well as we emulate them. So I'm going to read this chapter in small chunks at a time. So starting with 2 Samuel 19, 1 to 8. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it said that day, The king is grieved for his son. And the people stole back into the city that day, as people who are ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. But the king covered his face, and the king cried out with a loud voice, O oh, my son Absalom, O oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab came into the house of the king and said, Today you have disgraced all your servants, who today have saved your life, the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines, in that you love your enemies and hate your friends. For you have declared today that you regard neither princes nor servants. For today I perceive that if Absalom had lived and all of us had died today, then it would have pleased you well. Now, therefore, arise, go and go out and speak comfort to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, not one will stay with you this night. And that will be worse for you than all the evil that has befallen you from your youth until now. Then the king arose and sat in the gate, and they told all the people, saying, There is the king sitting in the gate. So all the people came before the king, for everyone of Israel had fled to his tent. So first we learn that the true king displays compassionate leadership. Now, as we look at David here, and he's weeping, and Joab is rebuking, I can confidently say two things can be true at the same time. It's okay that David cried for his son. And we can agree with Joab that the king has responsibilities to fulfill. It's as if David and Joab each hold Two parts of a whole. David's compassionate, but needs a reminder to be a leader. Joab pushes for leadership, but he could use a lesson or two on compassion. Now, we may want to side with David, but let's give Joab some credit here. He may not understand all the complications of David's excessive grief, but he understands its implications. His absence from the gate speaks volumes. It communicates that David disregards his servants' lives. Soon they may even abandon him. So David steps up as the true king of Israel. He eventually displays both compassion and leadership. Now, here's a quick application question. 
what is the main motivator in your life? Is it pity or is it duty? I'm definitely the more dutiful type. I got to work on the pity part. Now, don't get me wrong. Without a sense of duty, we'd be in a world of trouble. Nothing will get done. <laughs> of course, we should fulfill our duty. But we need to pair our duty with pity. And our Lord Jesus did that perfectly. The gospel tells us how in one scene outside the cities, when he saw the multitudes, it is said he was moved with compassion. Compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. This motivated our Savior to action. He was perfect in both compassion and leadership. I ask the Lord this week to grant you the same virtue. So back to the story. Chapter 19, verse 8 is a transition verse. It links us back to chapter 18, verse 17, where we left off David's enemies. When they saw that their leader Absalom had fallen, they fled to their tents to figure out what to do next. So let's read about that in verses 9 to 14. Now all the people were in a dispute throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king saved us from the hand of our enemies. He delivered us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled from the land because of Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, has died in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing back the king? So, the king, so King David sent to Zadok and Abiathar the priest, saying, Speak to the elders of Judah, saying, Why are you the last to bring the king back to his house, since the words of all Israel have come to the king, to his very house? You are my brethren, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then are you the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me. And more also, if you are not commander of the army before me continually in place of Joab. So he swayed the hearts of all the men of Judah, just as the heart of one man, so that they sent this word to the king, return, you and all your servants. So again, in verses 1 to 8, there was a bitter grief over one son. Now there's competition between two sides here in verses 9 to 14 and verses 40 to 43, which I'll read later. We learn from these verses that the true king stirs up loyalty and zeal. Inspiring others to follow you is not easy. Uh, Dan Peters, one of the former pastors here at Faith Bible, regularly reminds me of this. If you're a leader and no one follows you, you're just taking a walk. But David, he's not just taking a walk. He's a good shepherd king. People get behind him. We've seen throughout the scriptures how people get behind them, whether they're fellow countrymen or foreigners. But even as they get behind them, not all is well. Surprisingly, the first to take the initiative are the ten tribes of Israel. Where's Judah, the tribe of David? That's what the king wants to know. Recall in their better moments how after Saul died, 
after 2 Samuel chapter 1, David went up to Hebron, and there the men of Judah anointed him as king over them. So the tribe of Judah was the first to recognize David as king. Now they're the last to restore him. That won't do. The king urgently sends his trusted priests, Zadok and Abiathar, to get their attention. In David's message, he he got the attention of a warrior of Judah, Amasa. Amasa is not only from his tribe, he's David's relative, one of his nephews like Joab and Abishai. Amasa was Absalom's captain, just as Joab was David's captain. So he was once on the side of the enemy, he must have repented, and it just happens the king has had enough of Joab. It's time for a change in the chief captain office. By the way, I can't say for sure whether the king figured out what Joab did to Absalom in the previous chapter. Remember ruthlessly killing him while he hung helplessly on the terebinth tree against the wishes of David to deal gently with him? But whether he knew this or not, David's tired of dealing with Joab's insubordination. So the men of Judah got the message. They unite and they send word back to the king. You see in verse 15 and the final verse, four verses of this chapter, that even after a late start, Judah's able to arrive at the front of the line at Gilgal. They lead the effort in escorting the king across the Jordan River. See how David, as true king, stirs up loyalty and zeal. Once again, pausing for some reflection. How does loyalty and zeal, how does it relate to your relationship with Jesus? You can say you love Jesus. You can say you have a relationship. He's your savior. Are you zealous for him? Are you excited about the return of your king, the king of kings? And think about his final words in the scriptures. Just turn to the last page, to the second, to the last verse. Revelation 22, verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Is your response then? Amen. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Let this resonate with you today and all your days. Are you looking to heaven? Are you eagerly waiting for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to appear a second time? My wife and I are eager to welcome our second child into our arms. We can be excited about the weekend, a football game, catching up with friends, going on a first date with someone. But are you zealous, most of all, for Christ's return? Also, while we wait for Jesus, are we united in our hearts under the king's rule? Here's what I mean by that. Like Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 comes to mind. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, And so much the more as you see the day approaching. 
the verses 9 to 14 show us how we as a group should react to the coming judgment of Christ. Next, the middle portion of 2 Samuel 19 gets us thinking as individuals how we can prepare for the king's return. And we turn to verses 15 to 39 as David deals with three persons. I'll divide the reading accordingly. You got David's interactions with Shimei in verses 15 to 23, Mephibosheth in verses 24 to 30, and Barzillai in verses 31 to 39. So as David converses with each one, see how the true king deals wisely in judging character. So here's Shimei in verses 15 to 23. Then the king returned and came to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to go meet Go to go to meet the king, to escort the king across the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, who was from Bahurim, hurried and came down with the men of Judah to meet King David. There were a thousand men of Benjamin with him, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, and his fifteen sons and his twenty servants with him, and they went over the Jordan before the king. Then a ferry boat went across to carry over the king's household and to do what he thought good. Now Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king when he crossed, when he crossed the Jordan. Then he, came, then he said to the king, Do not let my lord impute iniquity to me, or remember what wrong your servant did on the day that my lord the king left Jerusalem, that the king should take it to heart. For I, your servant, know I have sinned. Therefore here I am, the first to come today of all the house of Joseph, to go down to meet my lord the king. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered and said, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? And David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should be adversaries to me today? Shall any man be put to death today in Israel? Or do I not know that today I am king over Israel? Therefore the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king swore to him. When I see Shimei, I see a clearly flawed character. Unlike Mephibosheth or Ziba, there's no doubt concerning this man's wrongdoing. You go back to chapter 16, recall that he's a man from the family of the house of Saul at Bahurim, not far from Jerusalem. He has some mean and wrong and choice words for David. Lest you forget, here they are. Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned and the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom your son so now you are caught in your own evil because you are a bloodthirsty man. And add to that he went along the hillside opposite the king and cursed as he went. He threw stones at him and kicked up dust. And who can forget such commotion, vulgarity, obscenity. Everyone saw it. Everyone probably wished, like, David just say something like, I'll show you a bloodthirsty man, right? Shimei knew he was in trouble. And he knew that well. His best chance was to run for his life, not away from the king, but straight to him. Fall at his feet and beg for mercy. His eagerness is seen in that he caught up to the men of Judah at the front. His words indicate sorrow and regret for sin. But before David can answer Shimei, 
Abishai spoke up as sort of a prosecutor here, wanting to see justice done. After all, God tells us later in the word that do not curse the king even in our thoughts, right? Well, Shimei is way past cursing in his thoughts, isn't he? But David shows mercy in verses 22 to 23. I think he addresses two matters here. First, the king's tired of the way Joab and Abishai offer violent answers to every problem. He does not wish more lives to be lost that day. It's not as if David needs more assurance of his authority. It's not as if he's insecure. Secondly, when David sees and hears Shimei, he detects sufficient evidence of true repentance. Now, we're tempted to judge Shimei based on his future conduct. You can read about them in 1 Kings. But on this day, in this present moment, David perceives him to be genuine. There's a simple case of a man who turned away from his sin and turned to the Lord's anointed. Again, David, as true king, deals wisely in judging character. Now, for a more difficult case, so let me build up to verses 24 to 30. If Shimei was clearly a bad character, Mephibosheth and Ziba are grayer, unclear in the motives there, like they seem dubious in character. David and us too need to review what happened earlier to make a wise judgment. So I'll reintroduce Mephibosheth here. In 2 Samuel 4.4, we learn that he's the son of Jonathan and grandson of Saul. He was five years old when his father and grandfather died in the battle against the Philistines. When his nurse heard the news of Israel's defeat, she took up Mephibosheth and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. He was in hiding for a while until Saul's servant Ziba helped David locate him. That was back in chapter 9 when David wanted to show kindness to the house of Jonathan. Now as for Ziba, he wasn't just any servant in Saul's house. He himself had 20 servants under him and his 15 sons. He appears to be powerful, perhaps headed for some kind of promotion in David's kingdom, Nevertheless, chapter 9 ended with Mephibosheth exalted in Jerusalem, eating continually at the king's table. Ziba, meanwhile, was assigned to serve this lame man. We're not sure how he felt about that. Maybe there was some bitterness. Skip ahead to chapter 16. We haven't heard from Ziba and Mephibosheth in a while, but suddenly Ziba shows up to David without his master, bearing gifts to David as he fled from Absalom. When asked about Mephibosheth's whereabouts, Ziba answered, Indeed, he is staying in Jerusalem, for he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. In other words, and this is key, Ziba claimed Mephibosheth betrayed David. David must have been hurt by the news. And he must have trusted Ziba's report because he hands over to him all of Mephibosheth's possessions. Now let's hear Mephibosheth's side of the story. 
19, 24 to 30. Now Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king, and he had not cared for his feet, nor trimmed his mustache, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he returned in peace. So it was when he had come to Jerusalem to meet the king that the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? And he answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go to the king, because your servant is lame. And he has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do what is good in your eyes. For all my father's house were but dead men before my lord the king. Yet you set your servant among those who eat at your own table. Therefore, what right have I still to cry out any more to the king? So the king said to him, Why do you speak any more of your matters? I have said, You and Ziba divide the land. Then my people said to the king, Rather, let him take it off, inasmuch as my lord the king has come back in peace to his own house. So put on your detective hats. What do you think? Like I said in, the, in a previous sermon, I tend to think Mephibosheth is telling the truth, while Ziba is an opportunistic liar. See why you need wisdom to discern motives and discern characters. David needed it. And I think he does a good job here. He's swift to hear, right? As he searches out the matter as king, he uses probing questions. I think his, even his decree to divide the land estate between Ziba and Mephibosheth has this effect of revealing motives. If Mephibosheth reacted with anger, bitterness, jealousy at the loss that he just suffered, loss of his material possessions, he's really not worth David's time, is he? But he'd rather have David than silver or gold. Rather him than houses or lands. I believe the king saw in this lame man true loyalty. I'm not dogmatic on this, and this is a harder case of discerning motives. But we move on to an easier case next. Barzillai, the Gileadite, the one who's been constant and faithful to David. We met Barzillai back in chapter 17. He, with two others, brought David and his followers an abundance of food to Mahanaim as they finished a long trek from Jerusalem. Now fast forward to this chapter. Now that the struggle with Absalom is over, Barzillai's time of service is nearing its end. So let's read verses 31 to 39. And Barzillai the Gileadite came down from Rogelim and went across the Jordan with the king to escort him across the Jordan. Now Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with supplies while he stayed at Mahanaim, where he was a very rich man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come across with me, and I will provide for you while you are with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How long have I to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am today 80 years old. Can I discern between the good and bad? Can your servant taste what I eat or what I drink? Can I hear any longer the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant 
be a further burden to my lord the king. Your servant will go a little way across the Jordan with the king. And why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant turn back again, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and mother. But here is your servant Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord the king and do for him what seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall cross over with me, and I will do for him what seems good to you. Now whatever you request of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and when the king had crossed over, the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and returned to his own house. So Barzillai is a nice change of pace, a refreshing break from the likes of Shimei, Deba, and Mephibosheth, really. There's nothing to question when it comes to his character. There's been much to praise when it comes to his hospitality and humility. Because of his hospitality, David wished to reward Barzillai. But that's when we see his humility. Barzillai alleviated David's burden at first. He refuses to become David's burden at last. He'd rather return home to Rogelim after escorting the king across the Jordan. There's his final act of service, sending his servant Kimham. Knowing Barzillai, I can only assume that this is his best servant. And you'll see throughout the scriptures later that Barzillai's kindness will be remembered by generations hence. So again, in dealing with Shimei, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai, verses 15 to 39 reveal how the true king deals wisely in judging character. David's going to need all his wisdom and more as the tribes of the nation flock to him, but remain divided. So let's read the final part of this chapter, which brings up again the competition between the two sides of his people. So verse 40 to the end. Now the king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him, and all the people of Judah escorted the king, and also half the people of Israel. Just then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brethren, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household and all David's men with him across the Jordan? So all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is a close relative of ours. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we ever eaten at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah and said, We have ten shares in the king. Therefore, we also have more right to David than you. Why then do you despise us? Were we not the first to advise bringing back our king? Yet the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. I won't make too much comment on these verses today. Next time we'll pick up on this bickering as it spills over into another rebellion. For now, just know that even as David was on the brink of his return to power, there's disarray, there's disunity. It it just goes to show how even our best rulers can't guarantee a lasting peace. Sure, David's rule was better than Saul's, but it's far from perfect. Many have suffered 
and many will suffer under David. And it's the same old with the new kings that follow. In fact, I'm saying all the stories of the kings of this world have their differing levels of disappointments. All are imperfect. And yet in us, there's this persistent longing for a perfect kingdom. Well, that requires a perfect king. You keep on flipping through the pages of the Bible and you'll see we have such a king in Jesus. And this relates to the gospel. Jesus has genealogical connections to David. He too is the Lord's anointed without sharing in any of David's faults and failures. Jesus also differs from all others in that he's God who became flesh. During his life, Christ Jesus proved his word to be king. He displayed compassion as he wept over the sinful city of Jerusalem and as he wept over his beloved friend who suffered and died. He inspired loyalty and zeal among his disciples as he demanded they answer the call, follow me. He had wise insight and discernment to see faith in certain people without committing himself to the people in general. And even though it was obvious, he's the true king of Israel. And beyond that, the light of the world, he was rejected. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. He was not welcomed at Jerusalem where he should have reigned. Rather, he suffered outside his gates. He was nailed to the cross like a rebel and wore a crown of thorns. The ignorant rulers of this age crucified the Lord of glory. Christ's death was not meaningless. He died for our sins. Yes, it's true, we are sinners. As much as we like to fancy ourselves to be innocent or pure, as much as we like to believe we're Barzillai in the story, we're closer to Shimei. We rebel. We've taken the wrong side and opposed the Lord's anointed. We've dishonored our parents like Absalom. We've deceived and slandered others like Ziba. The list of wrongs and regrets pile on and on. But at the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of sin that we should pay. Judgment day is payday for our law-breaking. We're talking about hell for eternity. But so that we don't have to go there, Christ paid for our sins in full. He died, he was buried, and rose again. He ascended to heaven, and someday he'll return take his rightful place as the king of kings. Under his future rule, Judah and all the tribes of Israel will unite as one. There will be peace in this world at last. Before it's too late, I urge you to repent, that is, turn from sin and turn to Jesus for forgiveness. You cannot earn or deserve a place in the kingdom of heaven. You can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And once we have this assurance by trusting in God's promises, we can face all sorts of trials and difficulties of life and walk by faith. I hope that these words that we're about to sing 
resonate with you, though I may not see what the future brings, I will watch and wait for the Savior King. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice. We are filled with optimism, not because the world is getting so much better. It's not. Things change. Politicians fail us. There's people we trust, even in our closest circles, they fail us. And we look at the managing that we do, trying to manage ourselves, manage our sins, manage our affairs at home, career, and we see how imperfect we are. But we thank you for just not leaving us as we are, giving us your word, not only to remind us of our sin, but to remind us and to point to the future glorious rule of your son. And you've given us a chance, and many of us here have taken that opportunity to repent and trust in you. Pray for those who have not yet, pray that that would change even today. And for us who do walk in faith, Lord, we pray that our faith would grow, that we would lose our allegiance to the world, and would submit to you, would eagerly await for the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.